reading of Psalm 39. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my mouth, I mean, my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. Discipline a man spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This one working? Good. Okay. Good morning. So you've already got your Bibles at Psalm 39, but before we start looking at this, let's pray first. Father, thank you for this morning and for the time we have spent worshiping you, the time we have spent hearing you call us to worship, the time we've spent confessing our sin before you, how we've heard that, that we have pardon. We have forgiveness in Christ. Pray this morning as we look at this word that you will uh, give us peace, that you will help us understand uh, what the meaning of this short, short life really is, and that you will grant us greater insight into your workings and uh, help us to glorify you better because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever thought about how small you are? You ever seen one of those pictures where it's like, you know, like a Hubble telescope picture or something or some telescope that they launched off into space and it's like turned around and it's taking a picture of the earth, uh, but you can't even see the earth. It's like a little arrow that says you are here and there's just nothing, like it's blackness. You've seen those before? Or um, you just thought about like the immensity of the universe and how minuscule like even our little solar system is, right? Maybe you've thought about the timeline of history, and even if we, we talk just about recorded history, just about what we, we know of, right, the, the thousands of years of humanity that have been here, and your 70, 80 years are a blip, nothing 
in the scheme of that. And in light of that, have you ever wondered why God would be interested in you? Like, why would he bother to discipline, sanctify, deal with you and your little tiny life? That's the question that David struggles with in Psalm 39. And I hope as we're working through this song of lament, and that's where we are, right? Last week we heard Lanny talking about this hard, hard psalm. First, I hope that you'll uh, learn the value of guarding your words and the value of silence. Second, I hope that you will be humbled as you think about how small you really are. And third, most importantly, I hope that you will get a better perspective of the meaning of your life and see that even when difficult things are going on, you have a God who cares about you. So let's, let's get right into Psalm 39 here. First, we'll note it's a psalm of David. The introduction there says that. He wrote it for this guy named Jeduthun. We don't know much about him. He apparently was uh, one of the guys who was tasked with kind of uh, setting these psalms to music, maybe for the choir uh, to sing or for whatever kind of worship uh, service they might be having. It's clear, though, um, even though we don't know much, much about that part or even the circumstances of when David's writing this, it's definitely a hard time. He's going through something very difficult, and we know David's life. If you go and read about David's life, he had plenty of opportunity to write a psalm like this. He went through some difficult things, many of which he brought right upon himself. But let's go ahead and read a little bit, starting in verse 1. And uh, I know Jared already has read it for us, but I think it's good for us to, to hear it again so we can talk about it. First, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. All right, so we're looking here at this psalm. We can see several things. First, obviously, David's going through something difficult, right? There's a reason why he feels like he needs to be silent. In the moment that he's dealing with this really difficult thing, he recognizes, I better close my mouth so that I won't speak against the Lord. Notice he says, I presence. First thing I want to point out here, the first words he says there are, I said. In the Hebrew, that phrase, I said, isn't just like a, I was talking the other day and I said. Right? It's not just an introductory phrase in like a dialogue. I said is, I decided, I resolved myself, I made the decision. Okay, it's not just I said, it's this is what I'm going to do. So this is resolve. He's going to keep quiet. He wants to guard himself from sinning with his words. Have you ever sinned with your words before? You can raise your hand. No, I'm kidding. Don't raise your hand. We know that sinning with our tongue is really easy. Really easy. Probably one of the easiest type of sins to commit, right? Because when you sin with an action, when you do something, you can feel like there's there's an element of like you're giving your body to this sin. Like, okay, that's I know that's bad, but if it's just a little lie, if it's just a little cutting remark, if it's just a little, ah, is really that big of a deal, right? It's so easy. Maybe you've heard what uh, (laughs) our buddy James had to say about this. In uh, James chapter 3, if you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. James chapter 3, I'm starting in verse 3. We'll see what James has to say about the tongue. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. 
So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. On fire the entire course, world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Now, just pause there. If you're doing an inductive Bible study, what word would you probably be underlining? Fire. Yeah, you see that? Your tongue is like fire. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. With it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. All right, it seems like David understood this principle. Maybe more like James read David and understood this principle because of that, right? He understands that for him, for David, as a God-fearing, God-loving man, for him to be speaking praise, we, he did that a lot, right? Half the Psalms of praise are like written by David. We know he was really good at praising God, but for him to speak that way and then to turn around and speak evil against, to curse God, that is a problem, right? It's presenting something, it's a spring giving salt water and fresh water. It doesn't make any sense. And so he decides to be quiet. And specifically, notice what he says here. He says he's going to hold his mouth because the wicked are nearby. There are unbelievers in his presence. He doesn't want to speak in front of those kind of people. Why? Because what does that do for them? It hardens them even more against God. They hear that even those believers, even those people who claim that God loves them, who claim to love God, are still saying these mean things. Right? You might think about parent who says, you know, who talks about the other parent behind uh, that one's back to the kids, right? What are the kids? Are the kids gaining this grand, wonderful vision of their, of their parent? No, like they're, they're getting an ugly vision because the spouse is saying bad things. There's wisdom for us in this for sure. Wisdom for us in shutting up sometimes. I mean, how often are we going through something and the best thing for us to do is just to close our mouths? This, we should never talk about our trouble or that you can't uh, voice your struggles to fellow believers, that you can't talk about these things with people that you trust. I do think this is very clear, though. We have to be very careful about how we vent what's going on in our lives and who we talk about it with. We really have to watch our words carefully. And sometimes it really is best to be quiet. But then in verse 2, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. So what's David saying now? He didn't speak. He held his peace. But what was the result for him? Well, nothing good happened. He's still suffering. In fact, he says his distress, his distress grew even worse. For David, holding his peace doesn't seem to be having the results he thought it would. He thought, okay, if I'm quiet, maybe this will just pass. And if you notice, the more he kept quiet, the more he thought. As much as we like talking can be dangerous, right? Sometimes I think thinking can be equally dangerous. Because notice, the more he didn't speak, the more he thought and thought and thought and thought and thought. And his heart became hot within him. He said, as I mused, the fire burned. You've been there before, Yeah. Something happened to you, someone said something, and it's like, okay, I'm good, whatever, I'm not going to say anything about it. But then you kept thinking about it, 
And the more you thought about it, and the more you thought about it, and the more you thought about it, oh, you're hot. So you can, maybe you can see that picture in your mind of David. He's afflicted. He's got his hand over his mouth. He's doing his best not to curse God. Like, I'm not going to say anything. But you can see it's building up in him. Maybe you've been in, uh, in an argument with somebody before, and you're really trying not to say that thing you really want to say, right? You know that wouldn't help anything. Just saying that wouldn't, it wouldn't help, wouldn't do any good, but it's just building up. It's burning. It's like a fire inside of you. You just have to vent. You have to get it out. We've all felt that. That's, I mean, it's a natural human thing to do is want to express how we feel with our words. And that's where David is. His heart is hot within him. He's thinking and he's burning. And then, okay, you feel the buildup? I don't want to sin with my tongue. I'm going to stay quiet. I'm going to guard my mouth with a muzzle. I don't, I don't want to mock God. I don't want these unbelievers to say anything. But the more I've held my peace, the more I've kept up, and I'm still here suffering. The more I think about it, the more it's burning, and I can't hold it in anymore. I have to say something. What does he say? Verse 4, he says, Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Well, with all that buildup, <laughs> we expect that David's going to blow up. That's not what he does, though. We expect that he's going to, like as Job's wife put it, just curse God and die. Be done. This is too much. I'm over it. I'm finished. But he doesn't say that. He says, Lord, help me understand. Not, I'm so mad at you. I hate you, God. Stop this. No. He begs the Lord for wisdom. He brings this big trouble, this terrible pain inside of him. He brings it directly to God. And he asks God to help him understand the point of this short and fleeting life. He says, My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. And we know he's right, right? We are. He's not just feeling that way. That's the truth. Like we said in the beginning, like we are just a shadow. We are just a vapor in the wind, right? Um, Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, um, Think of eternity, and an angel is as a newborn babe, the world a fresh-blown bubble, the sun a spark just fallen from the fire, and man a nullity. Before the eternal, all the age of frail man is less than one ticking of a clock. We are a vapor, a breath a mist, a shadow. And David's saying, help me understand the point of it. This reminds me of a moment in a play. And you have to indulge me, okay? I'm a literature teacher sometimes. I love theater. I grew up in drama stuff, okay? There's this play by William Shakespeare called Macbeth. You all heard of it, right? You know, kind of know the story. This isn't a literature class. He's a general in the Scottish army. And he gets this prophecy. Hey, I'm going to be the king of Scotland. And there's a problem there already is a king of Scotland. But his wife, being the industrious wife that she is, says, we can just kill the king of Scotland. That'll work. So they do that. They, he kills the king of Scotland. And unfortunately, that king of Scotland has some other like heirs to the throne sort of thing. So he just kills them too. Um, he's, and he assumes the throne. He becomes the king. It's great. It's wonderful for him. Um, but with all of this kind of murdering and intrigue and all that kind of stuff, a little bit of guilt is weighing on old Macbeth and his wife. 
Uh, she kind of goes crazy with it, actually. And then in the act, last act of the play, the very end of the play, Macbeth is in his castle, and he's surrounded by these armies who are coming to take the throne from him because, well, he didn't exactly get it so legitimately. So they're coming to take it, and he gets word that his wife has killed herself in this guilt. And he's like, well, but the prophecies are so good. But then he gets word that the armies are climbing up the hill. And in that moment, there's just this moment of just doubt. And realization comes over King Macbeth that it's over. This is what he says. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day till the last syllable of recorded time and all our yesterdays have just lighted fools their way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player who struts and frets his hour on the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. So in that moment, I think that David could have said that, right? David's, David's feeling the exact existential crisis, that same thing that Macbeth was feeling. They both recognize life is fleeting, life is short, life seems like it's really pointless sometimes. But King David is not King Macbeth. It is a tragedy after all. But the difference between David and Macbeth is how they respond to understanding the brevity of life. For Macbeth, it leads to hopelessness. It leads to, this is nothing. It's pointless, meaningless. It's, it's just this kind of resigned, like, well, that was all really pointless, wasn't it? <laughs> all this killing to get to the throne, like, ah, well, oh well. He's living out the end of verse 6 there, right? It says, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and doesn't know who will gather. Macbeth is in turmoil for nothing because he was trying to heap up treasures on this earth. But for David... Understanding this brevity of life takes him a very different direction. Look at verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. When we recognize how short life is, how like temporal this physical existence is, we recognize, yeah, okay, this is my hour on the stage. This is my walking shadow time. But it's not pointless. It's not just a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. It's not. Even though we're just a vapor, a mist, a shadow, we have a God who still cares about us. That's the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. That's what's such a big difference. We can both recognize that our time is brief and short. We can both recognize that in the span of eternity, it's just a, of a clock. That's it. But even so for us. We have a God who has created an eternity to share with us. Because we, like David, don't place our hope in those fleeting shadows. We're not shadows chasing after shadows. We trust in an eternity that's been promised to us. We trust in a Savior who spent his hour on the stage of this earth and endured this crazy turmoil in order to purchase eternity for us. Spurgeon said this as well. 
Man is constant only in inconstancy. His vanity is his only verity. His best, of which he is vain, is but vain. And this is verily true of every man, that everything about him is every way fleeting. This is sad news for those whose treasures are beneath the moon. Those whose glorying is in themselves may well hang the flag half-mast. But those whose best estate is settled upon them in Christ Jesus, in the land of unfading flowers, may rejoice that it is no vain thing in which they trust. We can see that our time as walking shadows does not signify nothing, but it has a grand and awesome purpose as part of the design of the Lord to bring about glory to King Jesus. We can't. You can't hope in yourself, your finite little self. You can't put your hope in the midst of this life. You can't put your hope in heaps of wealth that you bring to yourself. The only place you can possibly put your hope is in an eternal God. Now, once David has lamented this and said, oh, how short life is, help me understand. He comes to the point of recognizing his hope is in the Lord. And what does he, how does he respond to that? How does he respond to this revelation of the meaning of his life? He's, in verse 8, he pours out himself in repentance and begs for forgiveness. Verse 8, deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. So David turns from lament to begging for forgiveness. Because he realizes the pain, the suffering that he's going through is part of the Lord's discipline. He recognizes he must humble himself in repentance and ask the Lord to forgive him. He recognizes there's nothing that he could say, right? He was, earlier he was saying, I'm going to be quiet, but now he's saying, I don't, there's nothing I can bring up another thought that you may have experienced before. When we recognize the fleeting nature of life, we experience God's discipline, his rebuke for our sins, we wonder this, why does God care? Right, I'm this little tiny thing, this little fleeting nothingness, I'm so minuscule, this vapor, why is God messing with me? Doesn't he have bigger things to deal with? Doesn't he have a universe to keep in order? And if you felt that, I think you're not alone because I think that's part of what David is getting at here. Like, why are you spending your time rebuking me when I'm nothing? It's also Job's sentiment, right? If you've read the story of Job, that's where he goes. Let's, let's just look at that. In Job chapter 7, if you want to turn there, Job chapter 7, I'm going to start in verse 16. Job is speaking to the Lord. And this is what he says, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone until I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? We understand where Job is. We, we can see why he's saying this, right? And we can probably confess that we've felt that way before. That as we've been dealing with the consequences of a sin, experiencing God's discipline, we go, why in the world does God care about little old me? 
Well, I think the answer to that question is found in changing the tone of it. It's not, why would God care about little old me? It's, why would God care about little old me? God's attention on you, God's discipline to you, is not him picking on you. Lenny mentioned this last week, right? God's discipline is just like a parent's discipline of their children. If you really love your kids, you will discipline them. You'll train them. And sometimes that means that they will hurt because of it, that they will go through hard things because you want them to understand that there are consequences to their actions. You want them to really and truly live a life that, that, is, that is honoring like for you as a family maybe, but also in a bigger picture honoring to God and his plan. So we really should, absolutely, we should be surprised. We should be shocked that God would pay attention to us. But not because our lives are like short and pointless and so tiny or whatever, but because our lives are so short and pointless and that he still loves us anyway. You should be shocked by the fact that an eternal God, creator of the universe, the creator of time itself, would bother to number the hairs on your head or even to like know your name. It is absolutely surprising that a God so big, so infinite, would be willing to sacrifice his own son to redeem you so that you could spend eternity with him. As the shadows that we are, there's absolutely no reason why we should have a purpose. And yet, our God has made us for a grand purpose. He's working in each of our lives to grow us, to make us holier, and ultimately, to bring glory to himself through each of us. That's remarkable. Surely mankind is just a mere breath, says David. And yet the Lord has placed his attention on each one of those little breaths. Each child in order to sanctify them for his glory. So we've seen David going through a process. He starts in silence. I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to sin against the Lord. Until finally he's still angry. What he speaks isn't a curse. Rather, it's a petition. Begging God, help me understand what the point of this short life is. And he realizes that the point certainly can't just be to amass riches that will just go away whenever he dies anyway. And so he comes to another place, another question. Why in the world would God, this eternal God, spend time disciplining me just a brief mist? He certainly recognizes that the point is for him to place his hope in the Lord. He knows that. He gets it. But the rebuke of the Lord is still painful. And so in verse 12, he gives his final petition. He begs God to have mercy on him. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So David's just asking for a break. He's saying, Lord, lift your hand of discipline from me and ease this pain. But notice, even like in this request, David's still growing. The last part of verse 12, he says, For I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. He's still gaining perspective on this whole shortness of life thing. He's basically here rejoicing that he's just a stranger here in this land. That he's just a sojourner here. That even if, even if this pain that he's going through lasts for the rest of his physical life, he realizes that that's not his home. That's not his end. That's not it. He's just a stranger here. 
And that language is probably familiar to you. Uh, you can see uh, Peter use it in 1 Peter 2. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Like David, we are strangers in this world. This isn't, this is not our final home. It's not. And that should give you comfort, especially when you consider how short this time here is, right? That this isn't it. We have an eternal home waiting for us. But for David in this moment, he's begging God to have mercy and not let him die in this terrible state. Like, let it ease up before I die and no more. Encouraging one. When he begs God, look away from me so that I can smile again before I am no more. It's not encouraging, but it shows us a great truth. We've seen David come to understand the shortness of life. We've seen him come to terms with why God is disciplining him. We've, we've seen him come to terms with why God cares, even though life is so short. We've seen him move to this heartfelt repentance and this true humility before God, begging for forgiveness. But even still, even though he gets it, he understands, it still hurts. And he still really wants it to be over. Maybe you've been there. <laughs> Maybe you're there right now. You understand that the discipline from the Lord is temporary. Even if it lasts for the rest of this life, it's only a tiny blip in the scheme of eternity. That you can only hope in the mighty creator of the universe. You understand that this struggle, that this pain, that this time is really for your good. You get that the point is to make you holier. You understand that it's supposed to drive you back to the Lord, to bring him greater glory. You get it, but it still hurts. And it's still really, really hard. It's still really hard. But I have good news. <laughs> there is a greater David who endured far greater suffering than that first David did. You know me, guys. Whenever I get to the gospel, it's going to happen. So just, just hang in with me, okay? <laughs> There's a greater king, David. A greater king than King David who felt the weight of his heavy hand of discipline of the Father, right? He felt that far greater than David did. And through his pain, through his suffering, he has paid for your sin through his death. He's traded that sin for his righteousness, you only believe. And because he endured that suffering, because he went through that, he's able to sympathize with you where you are right now. And he's even sent this comforter to you, the Holy Spirit of God himself, to grant you peace. As Hebrews 4 says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He has sent a comforter of the Holy Spirit to grant you peace that passes all understanding. You may be feeling the weight of your sin, the discipline of the Lord, the suffering of this life, but you are not alone. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have an advocate before the throne. You have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You have a husband who laid down his life for you, his bride. And as Paul teaches us in Philippians, you're able to rejoice. You can rejoice not because it's fun, it's not fun. You can rejoice not because it feels good. 
Not, but because it has a purpose. Because you aren't alone in it. Because your God cares about you in it. So today, if you're burdened, if you're weary, if you're suffering, if you're enduring discipline from the Lord, if you feel like, golly, this is just pointless. This is a tale told by an idiot. There's a lot of sound and fury happening all around me, but it doesn't signify anything. If you feel that way, and if you're not submitted to Christ, if you're not in him, if you haven't placed your trust in him, I hope that you will see that you can have peace. There's room for you. There's meaning to be found. Come share in that peace. If you're in Christ, if you're a believer, know that your heavenly Father loves you. Know that Jesus is interceding for you. Know that the Holy Spirit of God is here to comfort you and give you peace. And most of all, I pray that you'll give him all the glory for every single bit of it, even the hard parts, because it's all about him anyway. Let's pray. Father, you are good and, and gracious to us. Remind us. Remind us of who you are in times of trial. Remind us of who you are when we are experiencing your discipline. Help us to trust in you. Help us to recognize that you have a purpose and a plan and that ultimately your glory will be all the greater because of every single moment that you've ordained in our lives. Help us to find rest in Christ's work. Help us to find peace through your Holy Spirit. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.